Lacrosse All-Stars presents In Your Face LaxCast. Unfiltered opinions on the most controversial topics in the game of lacrosse. I'm Ryan Danahy, former Division I college and pro player and Division I college coach, currently living and coaching in the city of Philadelphia. I'm joined with my co-host, Andy Towers, the legend, former Division I college head coach, MLL All-Star, three-time All-American, and arguably the best to ever play the midfield position. Each show, we dive into the world of lacrosse from high school, college, to pro, as well as bring on special guests. You can subscribe to us via iTunes and check us out on Twitter at InYourFaceLax for more information. Enjoy the show. Hearts getting torn from your mistakes. You know, everyone's been asking me what you've been up to lately uh, since your Dartmouth days. You know, what have you been doing? Uh, you're living in New Canaan. You're coaching. Uh, I know you got two little ones, Ty Ty, or not not little ones, actually, uh, which is kind of scary. Used to be little ones. Uh, certainly, Tyler is definitely not little. Uh, but, Jamesy, uh, what have you been up to lately? Well, uh, since I got out of college coaching, I've been uh, – Buying and selling diamonds, that's my primary job. Uh, outside of that, as it relates specifically to lacrosse, I'm doing a bunch of stuff. You know, I'm, I'm coaching uh, my daughter's seventh grade travel team, my son's third grade house league. Um, I'm helping our good friend Jamie Hanford at <laughs> Greens Farms Academy up there in uh, Westport, or Greens Farms, Connecticut, I guess it technically is. And... Doing some stuff with C2C out of Dallas, Austin, Atlanta, and Richmond. Uh, doing some stuff for the Eclipse, which is the local Fairfield County club lacrosse team. And currently helping the New Canaan High School varsity with their preseason practices, as well as Fairfield Prep with their preseason practices. So in typical fashion, uh, I am doing a bunch of things, which sort of parallels my attention span. <laughs> Uh, because if I just did one thing, eventually I wouldn't get there, Ryan. So uh, I've turned into the skid. I fortunately identified that skid after 47 years just in time before I went off the road, but that's not real clear. <laughs> so, uh, so I've been busy. So you've been busy, basically. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've been, uh, so for all the, the listeners, too, I'm uh, assistant coach at Penn Charter. Uh, so it's been Big Four Triple H, which is my primary job, um, and coaching and working with them, Billy McKinney, uh, right here in Philadelphia. Uh, working with now Penn Charter. So we are seven days a week right now. So we got practices Sunday. And then, of course, games Tuesday, Friday. Uh, we had our scrimmage, our second scrimmage uh, yesterday. Um, so we're, we're, we're ready to go in terms of the season. I know the northern schools have the tendency to start a little later. But, uh, you know, down here in Philly, they start right away. It's kind of nuts. They almost uh, align their seasons right almost with the college season. Um, so it's it's pretty exciting times, but uh, let's let's get right into the show. At uh, you know, before we actually talk about some of the games that we you know saw together uh, this past weekend, Fantastic Lies came out 9 p.m. Uh, this past Sunday. Uh, an incredible story. Obviously, we all went through it in terms of being at that time in 2006. Uh, the Duke lacrosse team. Um, Basically, getting railroaded. Uh, you know, you can't really state it better than that. But uh, what were your initial thoughts, At? You know, it's it's hard to believe that that was ten years ago. Right. Uh, you know, first and foremost, I think I think the production was unbelievably well done. You know, having 
a lot of familiarity with the case and everything that went down 10 years ago, you know, to have it all brought back and laid out, you know, methodically and in an easy to follow format was really, really interesting to watch it, you know, uh, you know, watch, watch the show. You know, when I was, when, when it went down in 2006, I had a, you know, a two-year-old daughter, James wasn't born yet. And now watching it 10 years later with a, 12-year-old daughter and a 9-year-old son, it really hits home when you think about the anguish that those parents, you know, must have gone through, let alone their kids. You know, it, it, it was kind of emotional to watch it at times, just seeing, you know, how disgusting the whole thing was. And I think that Tony McDevitt, you know, at the end when he had said that he didn't harbor any ill will towards Crystal Mangum, you know, who had obvious mental health issues, you know, I think really sums it up. I mean, it, it shows, it shows, you know, exactly where the guilt lies. And, and you get a psychopath like Nifong and his support staff, you know, one goes and commits suicide, you know, after it's all said and done, it just, it's, it's just flat out scary. You know, Reed Seligman had said that, you know, think about how scary it, it would be for people to take on that kind of railroading for the people that, you know, don't have the resources to fight it. Fortunately, they had the resources to fight it and were able, you know, obviously to be exonerated over, you know, at the end of it all, but just, just scary and, and, uh, you know, brutal. I can't imagine having my kids go through something like that. You know, when Reed Seligman's mom said they had to work at, you know, screwing these kids. Right. After Nifong had buried the, end, the DNA results, you know, which he knew about before he indicted them, it's just, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, it's just unbelievable. It really is. I, I was, you know, more fascinated in terms of how the coaching world changed after that incident, and especially in men's lacrosse, where our, our game was no longer this club lacrosse or club type of sport it was a main stage sport it put lacrosse yes on a poor pedestal uh, you know pedestal you know on on unfortunate circumstances but since that day and since that year salaries for college coaches especially in lacrosse have gone through the roof the responsibilities for those college coaches have also gone through the roof and you can't, as a college coach nowadays, you are responsible for everything. From the moment the kids get in to, their, to your school, to the program, and even actually, you're even responsible for when you commit to them. And there's, you know, national letter intense. You're, you're in charge of them when they're seniors and they're ready to come. I mean, this is, it, it, it kind of, it was, it was wild to see how things changed. Um, um, and certainly in the coaching world, you know, I, I, and you can speak to this better than I can, Andy, but, you know, there are stories where college, current college coaches back in like mid-90s were dropping the college, you know, the kids off at the packy store on the way home from, from an away win and letting the kids drink on the bus. I mean, you know, the professionalism in our sport has completely changed uh, and a large part of that is due to what went down with, you know, Pressler and the Duke lacrosse team. And, you know, I remember even when I was in school, I mean, we got a night out, you know, during spring break. They let us go out. I mean, that, that kind of stuff, 
that'll never happen ever again. I mean, it's, it's almost crazy to think that, you know, 10 years ago, you know, our sport was, you know, kind of clubbish, but now it's, it's a fully run organization on every level, no matter whether you're bottom tier D one or the Dukes of the world. Yeah. I think, you know, back in the late eighties and before, you know, in defense of the coaches that are still coaching today, I don't think that, you know, it was any one coach that was doing it. They were all doing it. You know, I mean, I think that that was sort of standard. Uh, and I think that that changed after our sophomore year where, you know, the idea that, you know, you sort of celebrate as a team, you know, with a case of beer or, you know, a bunch of cases of beer or, you know, for the entire group, whatever it may be, you know, it seems so obvious now and you can't even believe that that was okay. Right. You know, but, but right around that time, DWI wasn't a very big deal either. And think about, you know, where that is now. Uh, you know, and so rules, you know, the, the game has evolved and, 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 and rightfully so with the game spreading across the country on the youth level. There's just it's a multi multi million dollar industry. And with that, you know, it makes sense that, you know, these guys are accountable or held accountable for the actions of, as you said, not only their current team, but. But also their incoming recruits, right. you know, fair or unfair, you know, Sunday mornings are the scariest day of the week right. for college coaches. You know, I remember waking up at Dartmouth and, you know, praying there was no email or no text from players of our, you know, on our on our team. And, you know, while while many of those issues are, you know, quote unquote harmless issues, the fact is is that you know, there's a lot more people affected by those decisions than just that kid. Right. It's, it's, let's face it. It's, it's, it's the livelihood of those coaches right. that are affected by the decisions of 18 to 22 year olds in social environments. And when it's after a, you know, a big win or a tough loss, whatever, you know, or whatever the cause for the, uh, you know, the, the digression, it's, it's, it's a scary proposition. You know, it is a scary proposition. And so certainly this was the ultimate price paid by Mike Pressler. And unfortunately, it, it, it was all because of nothing. It was, it was just, a, you know, obviously a, 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 not a, <laughs> you know, not a great decision to hire two dancers to come to a party, but, you know, certainly not uh, anything that should have led to the termination of Mike Pressler's job, the termination of that season, and much more importantly, you know, the, the character assassination of the three players that were falsely Right. Accused. It's incredible. I mean, that team, you could argue that team, I mean, that team was winning a national championship that year. I mean, they were incredible. And to have that season I agree. taken away, it was really unfortunate. But going to uh, our next part of the show, let's, let's get into it and talking games. Uh, DU, Notre Dame, what a game. Uh, what a it was, game. It was incredible. I felt like, I, I mean, first off, the polls, DU goes to number one now. Why weren't they number one in the first place? I mean, it, well, we both thought they should have You said that. You said they won a national championship. Why not? Unless there was massive, like, graduations, you know what I mean? Like, you know, six, seven guys. I mean, they lost right. a big-time guy in Westburg, but that's not enough for me to push them anywhere but number one. I mean. And two, as you always mentioned, too, Bill Tierney. 
gets another one goal victory and doesn't lose one goal games. He, he's, I think he's undefeated in them. It's incredible. Uh, but what were your thoughts? You know, I was, I watched the whole game and it was, it, it certainly lived up to its hype after Notre Dame had made its run in the third quarter. Um, you know, the, the, the first part of the, I was watching the game and I was, I was blown away by just the poor shooting of Notre Dame. Right. The amount of shots that they put in Reedy's stick. I think Reedy finished with 14 saves versus just eight for, for Notre Dame's DOS. But, you know, Notre Dame and, and, and everybody, for that matter, they got to understand that caught shots are turnovers. And, you know, Sergio per- Perkovich, unbelievable player, obviously. You know, but he, he's got to make the goalies move to make the saves. He can overpower. He's one of the few guys in the country that can overpower a goalie from 14 yards of time and space. But if you, you're also shooting on the best goalies in the country. And if you're shooting it into a stick, it's just a turnover. You know, I was disappointed by Notre Dame shooting. Uh, I think a key stat was that, you know, Denver outground balled Notre Dame 43 to 24. That's a, that's a big difference. And then you factor in, you know, the poor shooting by Notre Dame and, and you really are actually probably, motivated by the end result if you're Notre Dame and sitting in that locker room, you know, on Monday morning looking at those two stats saying, hey, we lost by a goal in overtime. They got 19 more ground balls than us. We shot very, very poorly, and it was still an overtime game. I think that, you know, the one thing when you're looking at DU and how you beat DU, their offense is so scary. Notre Dame scores four goals in 43 seconds. I I think it just confirms that, you have to run on DU. You get your opportunities. You have to run. You have to shoot smart, and you have to bury your shots. Right. Because if you don't run, and you turn the ball over, they're going to end up scoring on the other. They're going to score, right? They're going to score. So, so, so you've you've got to take advantage of high quality shots when you have the opportunity to do so, and you've got to bury those shots. And if you don't, it's coming the other way. And Notre Dame is, or, I'm sorry, DU is going to score. So. You know, I, I think I tweeted out that I think that I think that this loss in the regular season for Notre Dame to me means that they're going to be the ones that end up. If I had to predict, I would predict that Notre Dame ends up winning the national championship this year. Um, you know, just based on what they learned about their opponent this game, and I think that these two teams are the best two yeah. teams. And then I think you have you know a a slight drop off, and you get to you know the next group, but. I think these are the two best teams. I think these are the two teams that are going to be playing for the national championship, and I wouldn't be surprised to see Notre Dame win. I, I'm a little more nervous about Denver in their clearing game. They're 16 for 22 yes. in clear game. Four of six. Yeah. Now, the other part was is 12 of 21 for Baptiste is definitely not an accurate number because he won those faceoffs, and they wrote it right back. Notre Dame did. They and did. that was at least, I can count at least three times that happened which now all of a sudden Baptiste is going nine for 21 and Notre Dame figured out a way to stop Baptiste. Uh, And if you're a team playing Denver, you know, here's the thing though. You think, I think we can say it's a wash. I mean, I think we can say the face-off piece was a wash, you know, 14 saves and sorry to interrupt you, but 14 saves for Denver, only eight for Notre Dame, I think was reflective more of Notre Dame's poor shooting than it was anything than, than a super game for Alex Reedy. You know, but I, I'm with you. I mean, clearing has to become an issue there. But go yeah, ahead. I'm no, sorry. I mean, the clearing issue, my thing is, is that if that's the only problem in Denver's game, which I think that is, I don't really see 
They have a great goalie. They have a solid defensive scheme. I mean, they don't really need to have big-time players. They do have uh, good enough personnel to stop a big-time attackman on the other end. Um, and, of course, their offense is their offense. I mean, they're scoring at, you know, 8,000% on the offensive end. You know, this it's, it is it is terrifying. terrifying. I mean, 60 for 22, though, scares me. And, and a lot of that was off. And none of that was actually judged off the face-off. Um, and so, you know, in terms of if you're facing Denver – you know, force Baptiste to win it back, and why not 10-man them and force them into making bad decisions in between the lines? I, I think I think you're right. You know, I think that I would be interested to see a team that steps out and decides to pressure DU all over the place. Right. You know, you look at their – they've got stud players yep. all over, right? I can't remember an offense filled with stud players – that collectively play almost yep. perfectly within the framework of Matt Brown's offensive scheme. You know, Matt Brown, is, again, is, is hard to argue that he's not the best offensive coordinator in the country right now. How, how do you not argue that? You know, when he's got great personnel, but the best thing about his personnel is they've all bought in to being a part of the scheme. And... That's the scariest thing about this team. And if they play so well together, you can't play a team like that softly and let them just break you down and beat you. I, I think that you're better served trying to step out aggressively all over the perimeter, turn it into chaos, and force these guys to manage that pressure as individuals a little bit more than... So, so they're forced to beat you in a way that they're not comfortable beating you. And people would say, well, how do you step out and pressure Connor Canazero? And how do you stand out and pressure some of these guys? I think they're, I think Denver's got some phenomenal shooters. But I'm not positive that they have anybody outside of Connor Canazero that is a, is a break you down with quickness and, and speed, explosiveness that way. And that would lead me to believe that they can be pressured effectively, provided that it's not you know, necessarily Connor Canazero that you're pressuring. Um, you know, that, that would be, it'd be interesting to see if somebody, you know, attacks them that way on the defensive end. And then of course, pressure can lead to transition and transition leads to high quality opportunities. And you shoot those. I, I want to see Brown and yeah. Denver play, you know, I don't, I, I, you know, that's, that would be, you know, or army Denver yeah. watching army's press defense out. come yeah. out guiltlessly pressure out, pressure out and, and see, you know, how they can compete against them. But that's, that's something that, you know, we've yet to see. And it would be, it's going to be interesting to see if somebody ever we'll does see. that. Eight turnovers in the fourth quarter for Denver. 18 total turnovers in the game for Denver. Haven't seen that in them in a long time. Led to the six goals by Notre Dame. Uh, all of which were almost in 40th period. Like you said, 43 seconds. I'm, ex I'm extremely excited to see the DU Villanova game in PA uh, coming up in a few weeks. Um, and then Notre Dame plays Virginia this weekend. AT, how many goals do you think UVA scored? Against Notre Dame, yeah, um, six. <laughs> I think that was nice. I think you're being nice. Yeah, I, I might be. I don't nice. like it. UVA is in a dark spot. Um, yeah, they are. They are. They're in a dark spot. LVL record. At wins week number four. Oh, feels so new and normal. <laughs> three to one is a record. I'm up three weeks. He's got week number four. Uh, you went 10 and 3 on the week. That might be the best all time record since we started, right? 
That is, that was big. ND and DU ended up being a push, even though I called DU beating them by one. Mm-hmm. Um, you called Notre Dame, but it ended up being a push. I was seven and six. I was, I went too much with my heart, not enough with my brain. Differential games coming in. Brown v Michigan. I had Michigan covering what was it, six and a half goals. You called the entire game, AT. 22 to 8 was the final. You said Brown was going to score over 20 and hold Michigan to probably around seven, I believe, is what you said. Mm-hmm. Um, Brown is Brown's the real deal. They are. I, 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 I thought Brown would win by 10 goals. Uh, and then I went even farther and said that I thought Brown would score at least 20 and Michigan would not get to 10. Sure enough, 10 2 at half, 18 to 3 after three, you know, 22 final. 15 assisted goals on 22 scored. Just the unselfishness, uh, the scariness of Brown's offense is is unprecedented. As much as, you know, uh, we were scary when we played there with, you know, arguably the best feeder of all time in Darren Lowe, this team is scarier offensive, offensively than we were. You know, Dylan Malloy cements himself. I think he is the best player in the country and the best playmaker in the country. He was a goal scorer last year. He's leading the country in assists this year. He's the best player in the country. Harvard versus Penn State. AT, you had Penn State. I had Harvard. I should have known better. Uh, Harvard losing for the first time this year in OT, mm-hmm. 13-12. Um, you know, it, it doesn't actually surprise me too much that Harvard lost this one, given that it was an away game. And Harvard, I mean, we're going to talk about them in a few, but, um, you know, Harvard's just struggling to face off backs. Horrendous. You know, Josh Wellman from Penn State goes 18 for 29 at the X, and they Harvard loses an OT game. I mean, Harvard, listen, they've been down a lot. They have one win over a Duke team that had a disappointing start to the season. You know, obviously a huge win this past weekend, which we'll touch in a second on. But, you know, who who is Harvard? You know, Harvard Brown coming up this weekend. I just think that the face-off group for Brown is going to be the difference in this game. Big Duke versus Loyola. 15-6. RD has Duke. AT had Loyola. Uh, I knew it. There's no way Duke was going to lose three in a row. You I know, didn't know they were going to win this big, though. No, but this is, this is so typical of Duke. You know, and I, and I went on Loyola, even though I said, this is the type of game that Duke ends up coming back and making a huge statement. I said that, and then I went to Loyola, which shows you how much of a proven loser I am. Uh, you know, the only, the only source of satisfaction in this game is that you had addressed taking Miles Jones off the Tawaraton list, and yeah. he comes back and slaps you in the mouth. Five Gs three. and three As. What three. a beast. From the midfield, Duke out GBs Loyola 40 to 24, 19 of 24 at the X for Kyle Rowe. No gray area here. Huge win for Duke. Virginia down three goals off the bus in Ithaca. (laughs) (laughs) Cornell beats Virginia by four. By four. Only if they weren't in Ithaca. You know, this didn't shock me at all. I had Cornell. You had Virginia. Uh, I just knew it. I knew it. I knew it. Going up to Ithaca is one of the hardest places to play in the country. Put that up there with Denver. Put that up there with Air Force. Just because you're in the same area, put that up there with the dome, um, and put it up there with Hanover. To be quite <laughs> honest, it's one of the hardest places to play at. You've got to get up there. It's in the mountains. It's the oh, the bus ride, the mayonnaise packets, and Beats. the cold so cut many sandwiches. It's disgusting. Um, <laughs> but uh, Cornell beats Virginia. Uh, 
Again, I had I had Cornell. I was pretty pumped about that. I had Virginia. I wanted Cornell. Uh, I I I I just wasn't a believer in Cornell's offense. You know, I just thought they were too young. And you know, Donville has 16 saves versus just seven for Matt Barrett. What what's happened to the defensive end of the field for Dart or for for Virginia? I mean, right. seven saves for Matt Barrett. He was arguably you know a top. He was a top three goalie in the country. I think he was just HM last year. But I thought I think he deserved people, more than that. Yeah, I think great. I think a lot of people did, and he just hasn't had a great year, and they've they're not having a good year, and, and that Virginia North Carolina game is going to be a big game for the last spot in the ACC tournament. Colton Rupp, freshman for Cornell, four Gs, eleven or fourteen goals assisted for Cornell. This is a huge victory, and then for them to beat Colgate last night, six five. Uh, Yale coming to Ithaca. Yale's down three zip, getting off the bus. <laughs> That's that's a big, big, that's big scary. game. This, this, the momentum that Cornell has seized in the last two games with wins over Virginia here and, and Colgate is going to make it, uh, that a very, very scary game for Yale because Yale Especially is expected to, to beat them bad. And then yep. you've got the face-off X. If you know Massimilian can dominate there, Cornell is going to going to be in a position to ride some momentum. I still think Yale wins a game, but I hope Cornell does. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about BU. Versus Colgate this past weekend, Hopkins, Towson, Stony Brook. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about Harvard. And then, of course, you've got the UMass UNC game. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. Uh, five games we're going to cover right now, AT. First one up on the docket, BU versus Colgate. And I'll be the first one to admit it here. I was a non-believer in BU. And I picked Colgate in this one. And I just didn't think that BU could turn the corner. Uh, You know, as early as they are in their program history. But wow, Sam Talco, if again, I said this prior, there's no one in the Patriot League more valuable to their team than this kid 18 for 21 again i think he should be player of the year you already mentioned christian carson banister uh who's been playing really well all year he had 11 saves 65 percent uh cal dearth darth dearth loading up four and one bu comes in now they're two and oh in the patriot league i think they're six and one on the year they're now deservedly so in my opinion uh even though i don't think colgate is you know a team right now that's, you know, gonna put pressure on any big time team. But for a team like BU interleague to beat a team like Colgate, certainly at home, uh, cements them as as a team that hey, they're scary, especially at the faceoff X. Agree. And and Ryan Poley has done an incredible job. I mean, he really has done an incredible job. Not only uh, you know preparing his team to play, but obviously recruiting well. And you nailed it. You know, it seems like BU wins. At the faceoff X and in the goal in every game that they play, and with that said, they are six and one. They're firmly in my top fifteen, um, but they got to go to Bucknell, yep. who lost to Villanova yesterday. Bucknell has an awesome faceoff guy as well, freshman. Uh, I'm predicting that Bucknell beats him this 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 weekend. That's um, what what a win by Colgate. They also go I mean, what a to Harvard after beat, that as well. They also yep. go to Harvard after that as well. And then they I go like B, I like yeah. BU to beat Harvard. 
Yeah, yeah, with the face-off X, they could. My only issue with uh, BU right now, 20 turnovers, 16 or 23 clearing, that's just sloppy. And, and that's th- those are the stats that you see from a team like BU's early in their program history. Um, but, you know, given what Talco's performance, given Carson Bannister's performance, they're winning games uh, and they're doing a great job at it. Hopkins versus Towson. Hopkins, or excuse me, Towson hasn't beaten Hopkins on Homewood Field in 20 years. Uh, a huge fourth quarter puts Towson um, into the dust. Uh, Shaq Stanwick having a breakout game for himself, mm-hmm. four and three. What were your thoughts, AT? You know, you and I both called Hopkins in this game, and we've yep. been Towson advocates for yes. the last few weeks just based on the strength of their defense and the strength of Sean Nettle and his staff getting these guys ready to win, you know, low-scoring games. And I just felt that – you know, the hop coach P and the Hopkins staff would get them ready to go. It, it just seems like when they have to win, they win. And right. this was a game that after blowing Princeton's doors off 17 to seven or whatever it was last week, this was an opportunity to lock down a win over a, you know, uh, a top 10 program. And they took advantage of it. Shaq Stanwick, again, dominating Ryan Brown, his, you know, uh, sort of uh, commercial four goals again. <laughs> you know, Johns Hopkins out GBs him 33-22, outshot him 39-26. Just a great win for Coach Petromala and his staff. Um, and it doesn't get any easier with Syracuse coming to town this weekend. Nope. And I, and, and I wouldn't be surprised to see Hopkins beat him. I wouldn't weekend. either. I, I'm, we're, you know, we've talked about it plenty of times. We're just not sure what kind of a Syracuse team uh, Syracuse is this year. We're going to find out against Hop. Certainly ben, on the road. Ben Williams is a stud, but yeah. I'm telling you, he comes crashing down. To, well, I'm not going to say crashing down to earth because he's never going to lose. You know, he's never going to get buried at the X, but this is going to be a game where, uh, you know, he's going to, he's going to, he's going to, he's not going to win 60% of the faceoffs. I mean, it's going to be a very, very, Mataraz is a stud and he's got a quick move, which I like a, a slide in the line move against a sort of grind out plunger guy. I like, I like Mataraz to more than hold his own at the X this weekend. Towson, Tyler White struggled. Seven saves, 39%. That's that's the first time we've seen Tyler yep. White struggle this year. However, sure. last night, they go into Columbus against OSU, and that is not an easy place. And you could argue that that, that might be one of Towson's biggest wins this year uh, because OSU is not an easy team to beat at home in Columbus, but they went out there midweek game and sneaked out a victory and went home and, and got home. Um, you know, but I don't see a competitive game for them until the last game of the season against Hofstra. I mean, I, I don't, I see them running it out. Um, but they've done the damage that they needed to do in the beginning of the season for Towson. Uh, and I, I really liked what I saw from that, that, you know, that game last night for them to lose the hop, come back out midweek, go out to Columbus it makes me feel like Towson does belong where they are in the rankings. Stony Brook, Rutgers. Stony Brook is killing it right now. I mean, we both picked this game. Stony Brook, uh, it was at Stony Brook. They were down 3 nothing. I was a little worried for to, you know, the game to start. But Stony Brook stole his back, scoring four unanswered, unanswered goals in the second. Outscoring Rutgers 7-2 to in the all-important third quarter. But Schultz, Corpolongo, Brody Eastwood combined for 11 of the 15 goals. And this is a senior, upper-class, senior-ridden team of offensive studs. Uh, they are going to be a hard team to beat come down, you know, as the season winds down. What do you think? Yeah, they're, they're already a hard team to beat. You know, and if they can continue to have success at the X 
like Jay Lindsey did in this game where he was 13 for 24. And they, you just keep giving that offense possessions. They're going to – Incredible. I mean, they, they could beat anybody. They could beat anybody. Um, and you, you brought up a great point. You know, they outscored Rutgers 11-2 to two over the course of the second and third quarters. You just can't compete with that. It just shows you that they can go on runs that are Syracuse-like. Um, so and, and it's going to be an interesting game this weekend. Syri- uh, Stony Brook, I believe, goes to Albany. Yep. And Albany's team is is just as scary offensively yep. as Stony Brook, or even more scary. But I don't think Albany can compete at the X. And you know, the early prediction, at least from me, is that Stony Brook ends up dominating that aspect of the game and ultimately scores more than Albany scores. I don't think it's going to be a defensive showdown by any means. Stony Brook just isn't turning the ball over, and they had another huge win last night against Hofstra. Ten turnovers. Three of those were which are in the clear. By the way, in the uh, in the Rutgers game, and eight in the Hofstra game, eighteen total turnovers in two games. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's incredible how efficient Stony Brook's offense is right now. Uh, I'm excited for that game against Albany uh, this weekend. It should be a good one. Harvard, uh, Harvard versus Bryant. Harvard versus Penn State. Bryant has a huge second half to propel them over Harvard, outscoring them eight to three in the second half. Listen, we, we kind of touched on it a little bit. Faceoffs continue to plague the Chris, Crimson. 10 for 25 versus Bryant. 11 for 29 versus Penn State. Uh, Harvard's got Brown and BU coming up, and guess what? Brown's got a big-time faceoff unit as a whole, and then you got to go against the monster of Talco at BU, or you know, at home, but against BU. I mean, I, I just – this is starting to scare me now because Harvard's got all the pieces except for – controlling possession off the faceoff. Well, and and they have, you know, perhaps the best personnel on defense when you look at, you know, their their starting defense, three starting defensemen in their long pole group. You know, the personnel is incredible. And Ben DeLuca does a great job with their defense. <laughs> but if you're playing defense 90% of the game, <laughs> you're going to wear down. And you, they're going to catch up. I, I if, if Harvard, if I was Harvard, what I would think about doing would be throwing three poles up at the face-off X and just turn it into a complete chaos show like Torp had us do when we played Cornell right. up at Foxborough years ago with the Goon Squad and just turn it, in, turn it into, you know, chaos. He's got the poles to do it. And it would be something that just makes everybody uncomfortable, even the best face-off guys. If you've got – if you're facing off against a pole and they got two poles that are coming in from the wings, you just don't like that, Especially if you are a Fogo and not a player that can handle pressure after the faceoff is won. So we'll see if they make any adjustments there. Hopefully they don't make them, you know, until after the Brown game. <laughs> uh, but I wasn't surprised by this result at all. I thought that the setup well for Bryant, you know, it was a midweek game. And, you know, uh, it's just a classic trap game. And sure enough, Harvard got trapped. And you touched on it. Kenny Massa dominates the X for Harvard. I'm sorry, for Bryant, and uh, even though Robert Shaw had 17 saves in the loss for Harvard, it wasn't enough as Bryant not shot him 53-29. to 53-29, that's an incredible stat. Uh, switching over to the other side, Bryant, the NEC is going to be a pretty competitive year. St. Joe's having a great year. Mount St. Mary's mm-hmm. having a great year. Hobart's not yeah, that bad. And then Bryant, those are the four that are looking to get the AQ, and it's not going to be easy because all four of those teams have great aspects to each one of those teams. Uh, big mm-hmm. game for Bryant this weekend versus Mount St. Mary's. They start their league play. Uh, last game to cover on this list, UMass 
versus UNC. Again, in the zoo, Dan Dolan, 18 saves, 67% in the net. Dan Muller or Mueller, sorry if I'm butchering your guys' names, 2-2, two and two, Tyler Bogart, 3-0, and oh, and Brendan Hegarty, Hegarty sorry, 2-1, and one. Ben Spence, 2-0. and oh. This is a well-rounded game for UMass, uh, especially after ups and downs. I mean, their season right now is the biggest emotional roller coaster I've ever seen, you know, but to be able to bounce back after what they've done, uh, you know, was impressive. What did you think? No, no question. I mean, you pinpointed Dan Dolan with a career high 18 saves, uh, you know, but, but that offsets a 17 to 25 faceoff advantage for, for North Carolina. Right. So you look at those things and you figure, okay, one dominates one area, one dominates the other area. You know, you, you think that's kind of a wash to me. The greater concern is, is what's going on in the net for North right. Carolina. You know, you got five or eight total saves between two goalies and you know, you're, you're, you're playing a UMass team that is coming off two tough losses. I just felt that UNC was going to go up there and, and just take this game, and I thought it would be big. I thought that they would beat them handily. But credit Greg Canella, as you said, one of the best coaches in the sport for getting his team to rebound and came away with a season-saving, at least in terms of keeping everybody uh, sane yep. at UMass. Uh, with a 14 to nine, nine win, you know, particularly after Carolina comes off of their best game of the year in a overtime loss to Denver. I thought that this was going to be a game Carolina was going to win and, and build on, you know, uh, that performance against Denver beat UMass and then, you know, move on to the more challenging games, but there's a lot of games left for North Carolina and they can still write the ship. And, um, you know, they, they do have a lot of new faces on their team, and it's always a scary team to play against. And I'm confident that Joe Brash and Metsy will make the adjustments and that they'll be, um, you know, in the mix at the end. But they can't lose any more games like this if they expect that to happen. They can't. I mean, you already pointed it out, but you can't make adjustments in the cage unless you get a mid-year transfer. I mean, you can't. True. They combined for, what, 35 Bring it in tight. Save more. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to play Carolina – Shoot the ball as as much and as often as you possibly can. Carolina also goes two for six on man up. Two for six. You know what? Thirty three percent on man up is pe- most people would take that, Ryan. Most people would take that. Not not Carolina. They want fifty percent every time. That's an extra goal on there. Uh, and to be honest, against a team like UMass, they should be four for six. That's you know, especially on those opportunities. But Carolina's in real trouble. Richmond, Maryland, Duke, Virginia. Hughes, Notre Dame. That's their next six games. Richmond's a scary, scary team. And, you know, mm-hmm. it seems like right now, you don't know what's going to happen. Obviously, you already mentioned that. But that Virginia game seems like the only game that will put them in the ACC tournament right now. I, I just don't see Carolina beating any of those. Well, maybe Richmond, probably Richmond. But I, it's just the way that, you know, things are shaping up in the cage. I, I, it's really, really tough. UMass starts conference play this weekend versus Penn State. Or yeah, Virginia's not great in the cage either. I mean, they're not getting it done in the no. cage either. And 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 Carolina's going to win the faceoffs, and they're going to win them big in they that will. game. They will. Um, you know, so that's you're, you're right though. That comes down to that that that's going to be a huge game. That's going to be playing in for the four spot in the ACC uh, tournament based on everything that we've seen to this right. date. Um, you know, it's going to be. I think Richmond's the bigger concern right now for Carolina. I will say that the fact that Richmond beat 
Duke last Monday night is going to be uh, the best selling point for Coach Bresci and his staff to the Carolina players that this is a very real yes. opponent that they are taking on, and I think that Carolina will answer the bell and win that game. Um, you know, whereas if, if if Richmond had not beaten Duke, they could easily be looking past that game with Maryland on the horizon, and you can't look nope. past Richmond. They They're can't. Beat you. you can't. I uh, misspoke. UMass starts conference play after their game against Penn State this weekend. But look at their losses. 9-5 versus Army. 10-9 loss to, to Harvard. Lost to Brown and Albany. Those aren't really bad losses. They're not. Uh, no, but the losses to Brown and Albany were really <laughs> bad true. losses. That is true. <laughs> but here are their wins. They got Ohio State. Hartford and UNC. Who who is this team? Again, we, we talked about it. It's an emotional roller coaster for UMass right now. Uh, but at three and four, are you putting them in the CAA tournament right now? I need more information. You know, they've beaten three teams, as you said, but but I don't think any of those three teams are playing well right now. I don't think Ohio State's playing well, North Carolina's not playing well. You know, Hartford's a, a team that they should win. Uh, you know, they should beat when they play. So I, I need more information on UMass before I can determine who they are. You know, they, they almost beat Harvard, but again, um, I just, I, I don't know about UMass. I'm not a believer. Uh, when we come back, coaches and players of the week, maximize your comfort. Welcome back. Finishing up our podcast here with the last segment, coaches, players of the week, and ask Hashtag Ask Towers. Uh, Coaches of the Week. Who did you have, AT? Coach of the Week or Player of the Week? Coach of the Week. Let's do Coach of the Week. Nice, dude. We're switching it up. Uh, I'm going right back up to the hill at UMass, and I'm going to go with Greg Canella with a bounce back 14-9 win over UNC after they fell behind, I think, 11-1 to Brown in an eventual 15-7 loss and then followed that up with a 16-4 loss against Albany. The fact that Greg Canella could get his locker room unified and bounce back with an effort against, uh, you know, an ACC team like North Carolina and the roster of players that they have coming off a great win, or I'm sorry, coming off an overtime loss to Denver in their best performance of the year. My coach of the week is Greg Canella. It's a two-time winner, Greg Canella. There's a little love affair here and in your face in Greg Canella. It's a good choice, though. My coach of the week, we got to go back a little bit with this one. Dan Shamadi goes to his alma mater oh, and, and beat up. Beat up a Duke team. Biggest pro- win in program history, no doubt. Uh, there was some nice, uh, you know, there was some nice interviews afterwards. Uh, the AD uh, at Richmond also was a Duke grad. You can see the connection there, and obviously you can see why he went and attacked Shamati right after their national championship to pick him up as a head coach at Richmond. Smart. Uh, but, you know, biggest pro- win Smart in program shopping. history. Smart shopping. <laughs> biggest win in program history. Uh, my coach of the week. Dan Shamati. Uh, player of the week, AT, who do you got? Well, our guy that uh, came back and put one in your face, Miles Jones, 5-3 and three from the midfield in a huge out-of-conference win versus Loyola. Um, what a performance and what a, uh, what a win for Duke. I think this gets them on the back on the right track, and, and they're going to fight to become and stay relevant over the course of the season. I wouldn't be surprised, given their personnel and given the magic that Coach Donowski and his staff uh, seems to uh, seem to work each year. Um, 
you know, I think Duke is gonna is gonna go on a run here. So Miles Jones, my player of the week. Good, uh, good choice. Obviously, shoved it in my face. Uh, I took him off the tour, Tom, but I'm gonna give my player of the week to another guy that I also took off the Tawarton finalists uh, list, and he could easily make it. Jake Fercaro, seven goals versus Penn. I never thought he would be able to repeat a performance like he did earlier this year, uh, but he did. Uh, 7-0 and versus Penn. Uh, this kid is a scary kid. Uh, he's putting the ball in the cage. He didn't have – he only had one in the last game against Bucknell last night, but it doesn't really matter. They won 12-8. Uh, this, this between Jake for Carroll and Paul Modesso, Villanova is a scary team, and I cannot wait for that DU Villanova matchup uh, in a few weeks. Uh, it's gonna be it's gonna be a great one, and probably like you said, Brown and Villanova probably the only two that might be able to make it happen. Yeah, we'll see what happens. Last segment hashtag Ask Towers. We got two questions today, just two. At Coach R Horn. Rob Horn from Minneapolis, Minnesota, my boy out there. Which mm-hmm. tyranny is better, the DU tyranny or the Princeton tyranny? It's the Princeton tyranny, and the reason being is that for him to win six national championships, uh, you know, at a non-scholarship school with the admission standards that Princeton has in place, is is that's unparalleled. I want to say that he took over a program in 1987 or 88, something like that. That was two and thirteen and staring up at rock bottom, and in the span of five years, won a national championship, and then five more after that, uh, you know, that is how you do it. That, that, that performance at Princeton puts him in the conversation of the best college coaches of all time in any sport. That is exactly how you draw it up. So the tyranny at Princeton is better than the tyranny at Denver. Not to dismiss his success at Denver, obviously. No. Because uh, he's still the best in the sport. Yep. And, I mean, and ever. Ever in the sport. I Ever. Yeah, yeah. Ever. No question. Uh, last question. It's from a familiar face. At. Oh, no. Billy McKinney? <laughs> nope. At T. Towers. 40. Tommy Towers. Oh, I know that guy. <laughs> Golden Tifo. <laughs> Rumor has it. You taped random whistles and affixed a lacrosse stick to your bed to practice your moves. Is there truth to that? And can you expand, please? Yeah, that, that is absolutely factual. So when I was a uh, freshman at, uh, actually, when I was an eighth grader at Canaan High School, Manny Suarez was a face-off guy over in Wilton, which was the you know, perennial state champion and was a stud and... I wanted to become, uh, I, wanted to, I wanted to be the best at that aspect of the game. And so what I did is I rigged up a stick under a milk crate and used Legos and hockey tape to basically create a head of a stick sticking out of the bottom of my bed like it was ready to face off. And <laughs> then I made a tape of staggered whistles, you know, down, set, whistle down set whistle and i did that and i created that and i uh, what year was this just, what year was this this was eighth grade ninth grade 10th grade and then you know by by my sophomore year manny suarez was a senior and what i actually rigged up is we had an old lacrosse hammock where the mask was all destroyed from when my brother and i used to box and of course he went through period and i hadn't so he would like let me hit him in the face a bunch of times and then he would like you know 
hear fake boxing music in his head and then destroy me and in the process destroy this lacrosse helmet. So I took it and I wrote Suarez in tape and stuck it on the top of my bedpost. So my bedpost was Manny Suarez. At least the helmet was there. And uh, sure enough, uh, you know, that's how I groomed my craft. So that's factual, Tom Towers. That is incredible. For all the kids out there, if you do listen, or the parents uh, who listen to this, and even the coaches, uh, that's why Andy Towers is arguably the best of all time midfielder. Uh, that's incredible. That's all we have for the show today. Uh, thanks for joining us. As always, subscribe to us on iTunes. Check us out on Twitter at InYourFaceLax. Uh, we'll be back later this week for our second episode of our podcasts. Until then, maximize your comfort. Thanks a lot. How is Bob?